spiritual warfare that we've been going through. Sometimes it seems like Satan is like Goliath. He's 10 feet tall and invincible and we don't stand a chance. But when we stand in faith in the power of a mighty God, there's a, there's, a, there's a saying that goes, don't tell me how big your giant is, tell me how big your God is. And that's the difference in this victory that, we, that we're promised through our faith in God. Would you bow with me now and let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are greater than the greatest adversary, the greatest foe in this world who is none other than Satan himself. And, and Lord, like Goliath, he likes to, to intimidate, to make us seem like we're nothing, like we're going to be crushed under his feet and that we don't stand a chance. And the fact is, he is a formidable foe. He is much larger and more powerful than we are on our own. But we thank you that by our faith in you, the mighty God, that in the end it is Satan who will be crushed underneath our feet. And the victory will be ours, just as you gave that victory to David. And so we thank you for that picture this morning as we enter your word. Pray once more that you would bless us by your word, that by your spirit you would speak to our hearts. That, Lord, that you would speak through me, your servant. And that, Lord, that you would meet, meet each one of us where we are. Give us ears to hear and hearts to understand what you have for us today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now this morning, as we've been proceeding through this series, we've been looking at now for the past few Sundays, the armor of God. And I believe we've got a slide or two here for you with that in just a moment. Now as we've been learning, we are facing an unseen but very real enemy. And if we're going to be able to stand our ground against this unseen but very real enemy who the, ba- the, the Bible identifies as Satan or as the devil or as the evil one or the adversary. He's given many titles. But if we're going to be able to stand our ground against him and his schemes, then we need to make sure that we put on this armor of God and further that we know how to use it. Now this morning we're going to continue our study as we look now at the fourth piece of armor, in the armor of God and in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 15, which says this, In addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. So we're going to take a closer look now at the historical Roman shield which Paul is using here for this analogy. Now, the Roman soldier's primary shield that Paul is referring to here is a large rectangular shield called the scutum. Now, we, okay, if we can go to the next picture, you'll see, uh, you'll see a picture of this scutum shield, and you'll see that it's rectangular. Now, the classic shield, of course, is a circular shield. Romans had those as well. But those were primarily for ceremony, or sometimes uh, mounted troops would use them because they were smaller and lighter. However, the scutum was the large rectangular shield, which was derived from the Greek word, which actually meant door. And the reason they called it the door was because it was almost the size of a door. Most of the shields measured about two and a half feet wide by four feet tall. And so at that time, uh, the historical record shows that the average Roman man, his average height was about five foot five. 
And so if you're carrying a four-foot shield and your average height of your soldier is five-foot-five, well, it's going to cover almost all of his body. Furthermore, the shield was designed with a slight convex curve to the sides. So it wasn't flat, it was curved like curved kind of like this. And so this was designed to transfer the full force of a blow on this on to the shield that rather than it going backwards onto the onto the soldier who's holding the shield, it would glance off to the side. So the arrows would deflect to the side or a, a strike from a, a spear or a shield. Or a, or a sword would glance off to the side. That's the way it was designed. Now, the shield itself was crafted out of a three-layered wood frame. And in between each of these three layers was linen sandwiched in between, which act as sort of a shock absorber, which further helped dampen blows. Then there was an outer skin overlaying the shield of leather, and it was wrapped in many layers of thick leather, which was then often painted, as we see in some of the depictions, with bright colors that would have the insignias of the legion which the soldier belonged to. Now, often, another interesting note is that right before going into battle, it was a, it was a standard procedure that they would actually douse their shields in water. And the reason was the leather wrap would, would absorb and soak up some of the water so that when the enemy fired flaming arrows or projectiles of any kind against the advancing forces, the, the, the shield was wet and ready to absorb that, that flame and extinguish it. And so as we read this passage, uh, you'll, you'll read that in that it says this shield of faith can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And this is a reference to this standard procedure to soak the shield in water. Now finally, the whole shield was held together by a bronze strip around the edge, and this held it all together tight so that no blow would, would knock it apart. It was, it was secure and firm with this bronze strip around the edge. And so now that we have a clear picture established of the form and the function of the physical shield to which Paul was referring... We'll turn now our attention to the spiritual parallels of the form and the function of the shield of faith for the soldier of Christ. Now we're going to frame today's study on the shield of faith around these three questions. Question number one, what is faith? So when we're talking about the shield of faith, we need to understand what faith is. That's question number one. Question number two, what are the flaming arrows of the evil one? So that's what's being launched against us. Let's identify what are those flaming arrows. And the third question will be, how do I take up the shield of faith? So that's the command here. Take up the shield of faith. How do we do that? So let's begin with our first question. What is faith? What is faith? Well, if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to our classic definition of faith. It's also, our, I believe, it's our call to worship in Hebrews chapter 11. There we read in verses 1 and 2, and then I'll also read verse 6, this definition of faith. Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. And without faith, it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Now, this wonderful, concise, clear definition of faith spells it out for us. That genuine faith is being sure of what we hope for. 
So faith is not a, a wishful thinking kind of a thing. Well, you have faith if I, I you know, I think it's going to turn out like this. I kind of hope that it's going to turn out like this. I'm hedging my bets in that direction. It, it's saying I'm sure. The next statement says that we are certain, that we are certain of what we cannot see. There's another, there's another verse that says we walk by faith, not by sight. So again, faith is saying that there is a certainty about what we cannot see. Now, for a lot of people, they would say seeing is believing, right? This is the opposite. It's saying, no, through faith, we believe what we cannot see. And in fact, we believe it with such sureness that we can say we are certain of what we cannot see. And so the author then adds this instruction in verse 6. That furthermore, without this kind of faith, it is impossible to please God. So it's it's utterly impossible to please God if we don't have this sort of sure, certain faith in God's word and in what he has promised, even though we cannot see it. But now we have to ask the question to dig a little deeper into this definition. What exactly is it that we are hoping for? What are we hoping for? Well, in a word, we are hoping for our salvation, right? That is, that is at the core of our faith, our hope is for our salvation. We hope for the salvation of our souls and the redemption of our perishing bodies for unperishing, eternal bodies. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3, he explains it like this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So our new birth, our new birth, or being born again, as Jesus called it in John chapter 3, this happens when we repent of our sins and we place our faith in Jesus to give us his free gift of salvation. And the gift of the Holy Spirit who then comes to indwell us permanently. And he takes up residence within us. This is our new birth. And this salvation in Christ, Peter says, is now our living hope. So this is is not a static hope. This is a dynamic living hope. It, It literally lives within us, this hope that we have in our salvation. So now here's a tricky question for you. Do we already have our salvation? Do we already have our salvation? Okay, I heard someone whisper yes. I like that answer. That's a good one. Yes, but also no. It's yes and no. It's both. Now, how can that be? Well, Paul explains this to us in Romans 8 and verses 23 and 24. Paul writes, We ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, Grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. So here we see something that's a little bit complex and confusing at first, but let me try to break it down for you. You see, Paul says we have the first fruit of the Spirit. So this again refers to that moment that we are born again. And the Holy Spirit comes and takes up residence in our hearts 
when we exercise faith in Christ. Now, though we cannot see the Spirit, we can, however, feel the Spirit. We feel him within us. As Romans 8 and verse 16, a little bit earlier, Paul writes, the Spirit himself himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So when the Spirit indwells us, he bears witness. He gives testimony to our spirit, an inner assurance that, yes, I am a child of God. And so, and so this, is, this is through faith the current reality that, yes, as Paul says, we are saved, and yet we are still waiting for something. Because who hopes for what they already have? So what is it that we are waiting for? Paul spells it out. He says, we are waiting for the redemption of our bodies. So this is the full salvation, that, that the first fruit, yes, we have it. We are saved. But the full reality of the redemption of our bodies, has that already happened? Well, I hope not. I hope not, and I'll tell you why. This year, I am staring down the barrel of turning 40. Now, depending on which end of the age spectrum you're at, you're either thinking, wow, you're really old, and that's the kids here this morning. Like, I know, I'm getting really old. I'm turning 40 this year. And then people on the other side are saying, wow, you're really young. Right? It's, it's that right middle point. They call it the top of the hill, and it's all downhill from here, right? Well, staring the, you know, big number 40 down the barrel, just the other week, I'd been roughhousing with the kids. I'd been tossing them onto the couch, and I was doing it with Addie, but then Theo came along. I'm like, well, if I could do it for Addie, I could do it for Theo. But then Declan came along, and I'm like, oh, this is, I'll still keep going. And I did it, and I could feel it a little bit, but everything was fine. Nothing went out of joint. I could feel my back was a little tense the next couple of days, but I thought, you know, I'll just, I'll be fine. Well, one morning, about two days later, I woke up, and I stretched just a little bit wrong, and I felt a crunch, and everything just went, seized up, it locked up, like, instantly, and I ended up in the chiropractor's office just a few days later. Anyone ever have stretching injuries? Anyone else? Is it just me? Okay, so you know, what, you know what I'm talking about here, right? My body is not getting any younger. It's a reality. This, this body is decaying. It is breaking down over time. It is aging. And so no, the full redemption of these earthly bodies has not yet happened. That's good news, by the way. So while yes, we already have our salvation through being born again by the Spirit, no, We have not yet received the final redemption of our physical bodies, which will take place when Jesus returns for his bride, the church, and we will be raised and given eternal, glorious bodies in the likeness of Christ after the pattern of Christ and his resurrection. And so it's yes and not yet. And so this is the hope that our faith is to be sure of, because we hope for what we do not yet have, but it is coming, and we hope for it, and in fact, we are sure of it. It is coming. Now, let's return to the second line in Hebrews 11.1 and ask, what exactly is it that we cannot see but are to be certain of? What is that? Well, a few verses later, in Hebrews 11.13 and 16, we are given that answer. That just like the faithful of old, a list is given of the saints of old, it goes through a number of them and it it stops and focuses on Abraham for a time. There we are told that just like them, the, the patriarchs, the ancestors of faith, 
We, like them, must look ahead with certainty to the heavenly country, the celestial city that God has prepared for his children. And there we are told that they died in the promise, but it was a long way off. They couldn't see it with their physical eyes, but through the eyes of faith, they died in the promise, having not yet received it. And so it's the same for us. Have our physical eyes yet seen the promise? Have we seen the celestial city? No, we have not. We have not yet seen it. And so to this physical reality, this is where the honest skeptics, the honest doubters in the world around us, even in our own families, people you might know, can ask us this question, not cynically, but honestly. I've been asked this question by people, honestly, and they ask a version of it that goes something like this. How can you be certain that heaven is real? And furthermore, how can you be certain that you will go there when you die? How can you be certain of this? Well, to that, my answer is, I am certain because of the one who made the promise. I am certain because of the one who made the promise. A pastor named John Bazongo, he describes a time when he was sitting in his study reading a book when his five-year-old daughter named Melody Jan came into him and with her big eyes she looked up at him and said, Daddy, can you please make me a dollhouse? And he's kind of interrupted. He's in the middle of, of reading a, a, a book on theology and he looks down at his little daughter with her big eyes saying, Daddy, can you make me a dollhouse? And in that moment, she's so cute and also he wants her just gone. He says, yeah, yeah, honey, I'll build you a dollhouse. And he gets right back into his book and off she skips happily. Well, a few minutes later, he happened to glance out his study window into the yard and he saw Melody Jan with her arms filled with all of her dolls, dishes, and toys as she then proceeded to make trip after trip out into the yard, piling up all of her dolls and all of their things and their little furniture and, and everything. And so finally, he sees her making these trips and he calls out to his wife, uh, what in the world is Melody Jan doing? To which his wife replied, oh, well, you promised to build her a dollhouse and she believes you. She's just getting ready. He said it was like you sent a, a shock through his body and he jumped right up and ran off to the hardware store to get right to it. The faith of a five-year-old. Her daddy had given his word, yes, I will build you a dollhouse. And though she couldn't yet see it, she was preparing as though it was already as good as done. Now think about this for a moment. If that is how an imperfect human father responds to the faith of his little girl, and so he keeps his promise to her, an imperfect earthly father, if that is his response, how much more won't our perfect heavenly father, remember, who cannot lie, how much more won't he keep all of his promises to us, every last one? As Hebrews 10.23 says, so let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. So we cling to the promises, just like that girl did, with certainty, with hope, because he who promised is faithful. So how can I be certain heaven is real? How can I be certain I'm going there when I die? Because of the one who made the promise. 
And so I hold unswervingly to that hope. And so just like that little girl, when God has promised that he has prepared a heavenly home for us, we can take him at his word, believe him, and though we haven't yet seen it, we can act upon it with complete certainty, as though it's as good as done. Of this, St. Augustine once wrote, Faith is to believe what you do not see. The reward of this faith is to see what you believe. It has to come first. Faith is to believe in what we cannot see, but the reward of this faith is to see what you believe. And that's why we so often say when a, when a brother or sister in Christ passes away, we say their faith has become sight. Isn't that a beautiful thing to think about? That what we, what we are straining to see through the eyes of faith in this life becomes sight the moment we come into the glorious presence of God, the one who promised is faithful. So in summary, what is faith? Faith is to take God at his word, believe it, and act upon it even before we see it. So now we move on to our second question. What are the flaming arrows of the evil one? And now we have a picture, I think, of some, some flaming arrows coming up here. Let's read the verse one more time. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Now the word translated here as arrow refers to any kind of pointed projectile that's used in warfare. So in Paul's times, these would have been a variety of javelin-like weapons, bolts, spears, and arrows. The tips of these projectiles would be covered with an absorbent sort of material, then dipped in pitch or tar, set on fire the you know, few moments before launching them, and then often the strategy would be that these flaming arrows would be launched not one at a time, but as a volley fire towards the enemy at the beginning of a battle. Now the primary focus or purpose of this was twofold. The first is obvious. The arrows will kill and injure some of the enemy, thereby decreasing their numbers. But the secondary purpose was to cause confusion and panic because as the arrows come streaking in, it could cause soldiers to break rank. And, and if they break rank and turn to the side or drop their, their shield down, it could leave both them and their fellow soldiers further exposed to more arrows yet to come. Now I told you earlier that the, the scutum shield was wrapped in several layers of leather, which would often be soaked in water right before the battle. And so this was to extinguish any flaming arrows which may strike it and, and you know, stay in there. And it would extinguish it. And so for the Roman soldiers to have their shields up before them was absolutely vital for their protection as well as for the protection of the soldiers behind them and around them. So now we ask the question, what are those flaming arrows in the spiritual realm? What are those spiritual flaming arrows that Satan and his forces launch at the soldier of Christ? Well, the answer is there are a wide variety of fiery arrows that Satan uses, most of them being some sort of clever lie or temptation to try to get us to become discouraged, to doubt God's word, to believe some, some form of a lie, to give in to temptation, and of course, to sin and ultimately, if possible, to get us to turn away from God entirely and to abandon the faith. Now, the general barrage of those fiery arrows comes against all believers. There's a general barrage that he kind of is just launching out all the time. And these are actually quite easy to identify once you start looking. 
You see, because we live in this dark world over which Satan, as we saw earlier in this series, he has a a hierarchy of spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms, and because of them and their great deal of influence over this dark world and this present age, it should come as no surprise to us that there are many things within our worldly culture which fly directly against God. And they fly directly against the truth of God and therefore against the people of God. And now for many decades, we have had this sort of dubbed the culture wars. Anyone ever heard of that term, the culture wars? I see some nods. Okay, so the culture wars is, is basically just a clever way of saying that Satan has a scheme. Remember, we're, we're combating Satan's schemes here. That's what, that's what the focus of this passage is on. Satan has a scheme underway in which he is attempting to systematically undermine and remove Christian morality and biblically-based ethics from every sphere of culture. But not only to remove them, but to then replace them with an anti-God and anti-Christ morality and humanistic ethic, which Paul describes in great detail in Romans chapter 1 and verses 18 to 32. Now, some of the more obvious flaming arrows are pretty easy to identify, right? They, they fly out of Hollywood and our media as a whole. Whether in pop music, books, magazines, news networks, TV shows, movies, and on social media. Just, just go and take a look for a half hour this afternoon, or, or don't. You're better off if you don't. And you can see just all forms of sort of a general barrage of these sorts of arrows. We can also see it in our governments, as steadily we've seen biblically-based legislation being removed and replaced by secular laws. And this has been happening for decades. We've also seen this process happening for a long time in our education systems, from elementary schools to universities. And this is is part of the relentless barrage of fiery arrows that Satan and his forces keep firing our way in general every day. And they don't quit. They, They keep flying. We might take a day off, but they do not. So this is the general barrage of them. But then, then, there's another type of fiery arrow, and these are the ones that are aimed specifically at you. They're personal. For you see, Satan is a cunning enemy. He's always looking for our weakest and most vulnerable points. And we looked at the example of King David last week. And so for this, he has an abundant variety of flaming arrows. It can be an arrow of persecution against you from others because of your faith in Christ. This could include being slandered, being name-called, being belittled or put down. It could be an arrow that's aimed at your emotions to get you to feel doubt, discouragement, despair, anxiety, bitterness, or fear aimed at a specific weak point. It could be an arrow of temptation aimed at a weak spot of pride, lust, greed, gossip, apathy, or envy. And these are targeted arrows. And in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8, we are told, Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now take notice here that the devil is seeking someone to devour. And whoever that someone is, when Satan pounces, when his fiery arrow penetrates, it is very personal, it is very real, and it is vicious. And Simon Peter, the one who wrote these words, 
He knew all about this from when Satan had asked Jesus permission to sift Peter specifically, personally, like wheat. Simon Peter was in the crosshairs. There was a general barrage happening, but then he said, I want Peter. I'm aiming at him. And so when Satan fired his arrow at Simon Peter's weak spot, which was a combination of pride and fear, Peter was unprepared for the attack. His shield of faith was down. It penetrated. He failed miserably, denying that he even knew Jesus, not once, not twice, but three times. And so Satan's fiery arrows can come both as a general barrage and also as carefully aimed shots at our weakest points. And so now that we've answered this question on what are the fiery arrows, we come now to the all-important third and final question. How do I take up the shield of faith? How do I take it up? We are told to take it up, therefore we can take it up. So how do we do that? In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith. When Paul writes in addition to this, he is referring back to those first three pieces of armor. If you remember what they are, they were the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, and the shoes of the gospel of peace. Now those three pieces of armor, they're all essential for the soldier. But I want you to notice that without the shield of faith, the soldier is still vulnerable. If you've only got the the breastplate, you've only got the belt and the shoes, you're still vulnerable to attack, to those fiery arrows. And so if you don't have that shield, at some point, inevitably, you will be pierced and you will be struck down. But now I want you to notice the wording here, that with the shield of faith, Paul writes, we can not only extinguish some of the flaming arrows of the evil one, he says, all the flaming arrows of the evil one. So this means that with faith, no matter what Satan fires our way or how many arrows he fires our way, through our faith in God and his promises, all of the arrows can be extinguished and our victory is assured. We will not be struck down. We will not be destroyed. I love this next slide. If we go to this next picture, I want you to kind of just take a look at it. Now, you'll notice that this guy here, his head is down, but his eyes are fixed upon something, and that is he has an open Bible in his hands. His eyes are down, fixed upon God's word, which contains what? All of his promises, right? We talked about that earlier, God's promises. And so his eyes, his heart are fixed upon God's promises, and you look off to the side and you see all of Satan's arrows are still flying his way. God's word hasn't stopped those arrows from coming. They're still coming. But then look at his shadow. I love it. You can see he is fully armed, spiritually, right? That's what we're talking about. He's spiritually armed. And that his shield of faith is raised, ready to block and extinguish every last one of those arrows that's still flying his way. As 1 John chapter 5, verse 4 says, Everyone born of God, there's that born again, the new birth. Everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. This is the victory, even our faith. Returning to 1 Peter 5 and verses 8 to 9, Peter continues Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. 
resist him, standing firm in your faith. Your faith. You see, this faith that the Bible presents to us is a dogged, steadfast, unshakable belief that no matter how bad things may currently seem, no matter how many arrows Satan is launching our way, that God is faithful. He who promised is faithful. He will keep his word to us. And we cling to that with a sure and certain hope. And so I hope that this morning that you are just growing in a a little bit of a greater sense of how vital faith is. And I also want you to take note that Peter says, standing firm in your faith. You see, again, faith is personal because no one can believe for you. No one else can exercise saving faith on your behalf. Your faith is your faith. It is personal. It is your faith. And therefore, we must each choose to exercise our own personal faith in God. To believe that his word and all of his promises are true. And then act upon it accordingly. For when you do, that is when you have taken up your shield of faith. And all of God's mighty power is now there to protect you against the very worst that Satan and this dark world can throw your way. Let me share with you one last story. It's of a three-year-old boy who felt secure in his father's arms as his dad held him in the middle of a swimming pool. But just then, for fun, the dad started walking towards the deep end of the swimming pool, holding his boy in his arms, and he began gently chanting as he went, deeper and deeper and deeper. And as the water rose higher and higher and higher up the boy's body, he at first began to grow a little bit in concern. But as it went deeper, then his face registered fear. And finally, as it got to the, you know, here on his body, he then began full-blown panic, and he began to cling to his father, began to try to climb up onto his shoulders. Now, of course, in this moment, what the boy didn't know was that his dad's feet were still firmly planted on the bottom of the swimming pool. And had the little boy had the objectivity in that moment to analyze the situation, he'd have realized that there was zero reason for concern or anxiety whatsoever. For you see, the water's depth in any part of that entire pool was over his head. Even in the shallow end, Had he not been held securely in his father's arms, even there he would drown. That three and a half feet of water in the shallow end would have still drowned the three-year-old boy. But he didn't feel afraid over there. But you see, the fact was that his safety anywhere in that entire pool, whether the shallow end or the deep end, depended entirely upon his dad's ability to hold him and not let him fall. Now, just like that little boy, every last one of us, at various points in our lives, we experience times where the water gets deeper and deeper and deeper. And maybe some of you are there right now. You feel like, Lord God, this water is too deep for me. I'm in over my head. I'm in way over my head. Troubles of all kinds abound. And some of them are general, such as, you know, when a virus changes our world and 
when inflation skyrockets or when wars begin to wage. We have no control over these things and we just feel anxious about them. We can't do anything about it. It's just happening to us. We're all affected by these general things in various ways. However, there's other troubles that come our way that are very personal. A job is lost. Crops fail. An illness robs your health. A, a loved one dies. A child is lost. A relationship ends very badly. A friend betrays you. And then just like that little boy in the story, our temptation is to panic, for we feel that we've lost control Yet just as with that child in the pool, we must realize something vitally important. That there has never been a moment where whether in the shallow end or in the deep end, that we did not need our Heavenly Father to hold us securely in His arms. Because the truth is that we've never been in control. We have always, always been held by the grace of God. Even when times were good and the the sun was shining and we were in the shallow end, everything's great. Even there, we need the grace of God to hold us up lest we drown. This does not change regardless of the circumstances, regardless of how deep the water is. And so thankfully, no matter how deep the water is, our Heavenly Father is never, ever out of His depth. Not once, not for a moment. So if you can trust God to carry you in the shallow end when all is well, then you can also trust God to carry you in the deep end. So even when Satan's flaming arrows are flying at you as thick as rain, when you take up your shield of faith, that dogged belief, that sure and certain hope in God's word and in his promises, that he who promised is faithful, that his word to you will not fail, it cannot fail, then you have the shield of faith. It is up, and you will stand firm against whatever Satan throws your way. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the one who holds us securely in your arms. No matter how deep the water is, no matter how many fiery arrows fly, It is you and you alone who protect us. There has never been a moment in our lives where we did not need you, where we did not need your grace to hold us up, to hold us fast. We thank you for that. And we thank you, Lord God, that it is based upon your sure and living word that our faith is secure. For, Lord, in you we have everything that we need, the salvation of our souls and that certain and living hope that the redemption of our bodies is coming and that that celestial city is soon to be revealed and it's just right around the corner. And through faith, we can already see it and our hearts long for it. And so we pray that until that day that we would live as though your kingdom has already come for it is birthed through faith in our hearts, sealed by your Holy Spirit, that first, that first fruit and deposit assuring our hearts that we are your children So may we live in this faith and in this confidence, Lord, that we can stand firm. The shield of faith raised up and our hearts fixed on your promises. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.